Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, November the 29th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It is the day after Frances Fitzgerald resigned as Tánaiste and Minister for Enterprise, after it became clear that her position was no longer tenable. That resignation followed a a week of political crisis which looked as if it might lead to a snap general election in the week before Christmas, at exactly the moment when Ireland's most vital interests in the Brexit negotiations are hanging in the balance. Later on in today's podcast, we're going to hear from our London editor, Dennis Staunton, on those Brexit issues. But first, I was joined by Fintan O'Toole, Fia Kelly and Sarah Barden to discuss the implications of the events here in Ireland. First, we had to listen to a clip from RTE of Fine Gael's Owen Murphy speaking yesterday. Well, an interim report from that trawl, which the, the Taoiseach did order, which is good that he did, and it shows that he does believe in accountability and transparency. And the full documentation then in, in terms of what that trawl brought up wasn't known until Monday. Those documents should have been with Charlton and we have it, to find out now why say, they're not. But is those trawl, documents... Is trawl the wrong word here? Because it, it leads people to believe that somebody is going through large files. We're talking email here. We're talking somebody putting in the words Morris McCabe We're and talk- gathering up all of the emails that come through with those names on it. And only 300 documents have gone to the Charlton Tribunal. We're talking about a number of individuals having to go through email databases over a two-year period to try and find relevant documentation. We still don't know why these three documents weren't brought over to Charlton, why they weren't discovered up until now. Finton, Mary Wilson has a point there, doesn't she? I mean, I'm not much of a techie, but I I use Outlook Express and Gmail, which are the two main forms of email. There's a little search button at the top. Um, You you run it, and no matter how many thousands of emails you have, you'll get a result back pretty much instantaneously. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm even worse than you, but even I can do it. And, and... You know, it was like it needed a team of civil servants to 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 trawl through email databases, and uh, you know, as Mary Wilson was there saying, you know, you, you don't even need to put in Morris. I mean, just M C C A B E. I mean, everybody can spell it, and it will show because on I remember there are multiple recipients of these emails, right? Indeed. So you're only talking about sort of three emails, but there are multiple recipients. Um, and what we're being asked to believe is that that none of these showed up on a basic search. The name Sergeant McCabe is really prominent at the beginning of each of these emails. Yeah. And it's reiterated a number of times because the same email is, is, is sort of, you know, reproduced as people who do email, you know, which is a new technology I know, but people, you know, would kind of know this is what happens. And this is extraordinarily serious. You know, I mean, it's funny at one level, but... What we're looking at is uh, the contention which is still going on. Charlie Flanagan said in the doll last night that he believes that this was entirely inadvertent. So we're to believe that they have no capacity to, to search their email databases. Uh, although, funny enough, when, when after uh, uh, it was uh, done by RTE last Monday... Uh, not not this week, Monday of last week, um, the 
Katie Hannon produced at least a version of the, the first the text explosive of the email. First one, yeah. so funny enough, after that was produced, it was then possible to find these other ones. So how was it possible? What kind of troll, <laughs> you know, was there a new kind of troll, a new sort of technology that they could use last week that they couldn't use last uh, February, March, when, when, when they were being ordered to do this by a tribunal of inquiry, which has the same powers as the High Court? I don't believe that for a second. And it's really alarming that Charlie Flanagan is saying that he still believes this. Uh, and actually, to be quite honest, I don't believe he believes it either because I don't believe any sentience person could believe that this is entirely accidental, that they couldn't find them. And funny enough that the ones they couldn't find are the very ones that everybody wants to read. So, so what should we believe? Because this is extremely serious. I mean, yeah. we're, we're talking about some form of criminal obstruction. Well, I've used the word subversion in, in, in the paper today, um, quite deliberately, because, of course, the Department of Justice really regards itself as the bulwark against subversion. You know, that's, that's the big part of its DNA. And, I mean, this, this looks very like there may be some extraordinary explanation that we haven't heard yet. So we, we, we have to say that. Right? And I, I want to also say I'm not accusing any individuals of any wrongdoing. Right? Mm -hmm. But institutionally, something happened here, which is what, what looks to any objective observer like a deliberate decision to withhold from a tribunal of inquiry established by both houses of the Eructus, chaired by a former Supreme Court justice with all of the powers of the High Court. So to withhold from that on pain of criminal offence. Remember, it's a criminal offence to do this. But somebody decided, apparently, to withhold those documents from that tribunal. Now, this is an act of defiance of Irish democracy. You know, I, I know that's strong language, but that's what there's no other way to characterize it. You know, and for, for that decision to have been made within the very government department that is there to uphold the law is extraordinarily serious. And, and I'm surprised that in a sense that this is not more of an issue at the moment. It seems to be not more of an issue because Fianna Fáil seems to be determined not to push it. Well, indeed. And on that very note, Derek Cleary was asked about Charlie Flanagan's explanation of all this on RTE this morning. He said the documents weren't deliberately <coughs> withheld from the Charlton Tribunal. Can he say that with authority at this stage? Well, he he feels he can. Um, I, given the issues and given the you know what came out in the troll, which would not have happened were this issue not raised by Alan Kelly and Michal Martin, um, you know, I wouldn't be as authoritative on it. But he seems to have given us a guarantee at this stage that everything possible has been done. And I think now. Uh, I would hope that there would be a vigilance within the department. But you don't know if the document search includes emails, texts, messages from the most senior people in the department? Look, I, we've been given a guarantee that the, the search and the trawl was as comprehensive as possible. But who would you trust to do that trawl? Well, look, at the, that's we can now hand that the responsibility. We can hand uh, an assessment of that trawl to the independent review, which is going to but be who, done. I mean, that independent reviewer, we don't know who that's going to be. It's most likely going to be the Secretary General of the government. But which no, last night during the debate, Audrey, the Minister you know, took on board proposals um, from the opposition that an independent person outside of government would do that or would be involved in that. Um, but we don't have a, have a person yet. Well, no, it was only proposed last yeah. night. And what, in fairness, what he indicated was that he would be willing to discuss that proposal today. But let's look Is also that critical at from your point department. of view? It, it absolutely has to be somebody from outside of government. But I think there needs to be an independent input into the review. Uh, we need to get the review done. Most importantly, get the review done. An independent input would uh, be of assistance in ensuring and in guaranteeing trust in it. 
And that's Fianna Fáil's uh, Derek Hillary being very emollient speaking to Audrey Carville this morning on Morning Ireland. Sarah, um, he doesn't seem to be pushing very hard for an independent inquiry there. No, I think there's a there's a, um, an attempt or an effort by Fianna Fáil, I suppose, to, to dampen this crisis down because they don't want a general election. And I suppose the more that they raise questions about it, the more that we'd be more likely uh, to be b- brought back to the brink of one. But if I can just go back to what you were what you were questioning Fintan about, this trawl of documents that was underway in the Department of Justice. And I think one thing that we're sort of not looking at and we're not analysing properly is the fact that this email didn't get sent between one person and another. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, all of the, e- the emails that were, were, that were forwarded back and forth between um, the senior official in the Department of Justice were sent to the Taunashta, her two special advisors, an assistant secretary in the Department of Justice, the secretary general of the Department of Justice. Now, we're led to believe that all of these people forgot that the um, email arrived. We're, we're, let, we're, we're led to believe that the person who wrote the email forgot that he wrote the email. We're, you know, these people just two, a year, two years later forgot that this email ever existed. I mean... To me, and, that, that, that's not This correct. is a critical point that Sarah's made, and it's, it's really, really important to focus on it, because bear in mind that not only was there an order from, the, uh, from, from Judge Charlton to the department institutionally, he also made it absolutely clear explicitly in his opening statement that there mm. was a requirement on every individual who had knowledge that was relevant to any of the subjects under uh, his remit, which all of this was. So each one of those individuals that Sarah's just mentioned was individually obliged to come forward as a witness, to make statements to the tribunal, and to be absolutely honest and upfront about the state of knowledge that they had. So I think Sarah's absolutely right about this, that the inquiry that needs to happen isn't just an inquiry about what happened uh, to the department institutionally. It's also a very basic inquiry as to why all of these individuals, from Francis Fitzgerald onwards, did not respond to the demand, the lawful demand of the tribunal, that they come forward as witnesses with the And, and this is a key point, and let me reiterate again, as you've said already, Fintan, that we're not making any accusations of any sort against against any individuals. This all needs needs to be investigated. But, I mean, you've written in the past about the culture of impunity and the way that when these things explode in our faces, there's a lot of talk about the problem with the culture. And, indeed, that's what Leo Varadkar is talking about, a dysfunctional department yesterday. Yeah. At what point does individual responsibility, in a legal sense, actually, you know, actually arrive. I mean, this is very parallel in, in many ways to what's been happening in the banks, you know, with the, mm. with the tracker mortgage scandal. Uh, you know, the banks are to blame. But, you know, people in the banks had to actually make these decisions in terms of, of tracker mortgages. And we've had not a whiff of individual responsibility in relation to that. So we have this broad culture whereby individuals are not responsible. And let's be absolutely clear, we will be back here in three years' time talking about exactly the same stuff unless there is individual responsibility and accountability and and consequence in relation to this. Frances Fitzgerald is the only person who has had any, any consequences mm. and, and it's very but tough even, on her. Even then she hasn't really accepted yeah. the consequences. She said I'm doing it for she, the sake of the yeah. government and, and the country. And she did nothing wrong. And I'm doing nothing you know, wrong and I'm uh, looking, uh, for my, looking uh, forward for my name to be vindicated mm. at, tri- at the tribunal. I think what you said you about legal responsibility but there was a political responsibility as well. So the government's defence basically fell back to one line within that crucial email which was you do not have a function in this regard minister therefore don't do it. And as someone quite rightly pointed out to me yesterday, well, a politician is put in a department to have political and policy sense. If it was just a legal basis, we're not saying someone should do anything illegal. 
But the minister is put in there to have a political sense around these things, to perhaps see things that officials would not. And, you know, if you were going to rely just on that line, you may as well have no politician in the department, have it run itself, because it's run on that basis. The politician is supposed to look at it with a kind of some somewhat more of a, a different intelligence and say, well, you know, legally I can't or I might not have a function, but I really should do something Well, here. what we see again and again, and we've seen it more recently with Charlie Flanagan, is him uh, getting advice or, or receiving information from his department, which for whatever reason, wherever the fault may lie, and he stood up in the doll yesterday evening and accepted that some of the considerable amount of the fault lay with him mm. in terms of not realising the significance mm. of that phone call in which the email was mentioned. But he's relying on, it's essentially, I mean, you're up there all the time. Is he reading out scripts or are politicians reading out scripts which are provided to them by civil servants and that now if we were to under, if we were to accept what the Taoiseach says, um, that senior politicians don't trust some of those civil servants in, in this that, particular That is the case, that they do probably rely on scripts and PQs are largely vetted through advisors. They don't usually go through under the nose of the minister before they're laid before the House. And perhaps, you know, the language that's being used again, Vincent said, you know, about culture, silo-driven, secretive mm. relationship between the guards. We've heard that again and again. When the Toland report was published a couple of years ago, that was exactly what it was talking about. Now we're talking about the same thing. And you, you would think that they would learn the lessons to challenge what is put in front of them. But they're not. Like, the PQs go through a system that the minister doesn't adequately examine, the scripts aren't adequately examined, and there's no way of challenging the system. It goes back to that point. Challenge what you're being told. You have no function. Okay, you're saying that, but as a politician, I probably do. There's no challenging of what the system is telling it, and especially a system as kind of dysfunctional as the Department of Justice has shown to be again and again. You see, what, what, what Charlie Flanagan knew... Well, he's hiding behind, OK, the department gave me these answers to Alan Kelly's questions, right? And I just gave those answers. And, and, and of course, what Vic says is absolutely true, that he, 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 that's not his function. His function is to challenge that. But also, he knew damn well he wasn't answering the questions. I mean, he's not mm. a stupid man. You know, he can, even as he's reading those, those replies, he knows that they are not answering the questions. Mm. You know, so the very least he can do is say, this is bullshit. Give me an answer that I can actually stand over. And, and the fact that a minister would have such self-contempt, you know, for the ministerial constitutional, this is a constitutional duty to be accountable to the dog, that he will stand up and read but, but, but out is it, but obfuscatory But is it, but is it not true, Sarah, that what Charlie, one of the things Charlie Flanagan apologised for um, yesterday evening was, was not answering one of Alan Kelly's questions, just as it was a flim-flam answer mm. devised by civil servants, and, he, and, and then the next week he got angry because he'd been, he'd been called on it. But do ministers not do that all the time as a matter of course? Not answer questions. Not answer questions, yeah. Don't all politicians really not answer questions that are posed to them. I think probably the most troubling aspect of this um, whole controversy for Charlie Flanagan is his um, unwillingness to ask questions. Even yesterday, um, during the debate in the Dáil last night, Brendan Howland raised the immediate retirement of the Secretary-General, Noel Waters. He was due to retire in February. He announced yesterday he was standing aside with immediate effect. And Brendan Howland posed the question to Charlie Flanagan, you know, why, why, you know, if he's done nothing wrong, why is he standing aside? And Charlie said he didn't ask, mm. you know, and for for a senior minister in such an important mm. and mm. as we've we've learned over uh, the past number of years in such a dysfunctional department to accept the advice of civil servants and to, expe- to accept the guidance and the instructions of civil service without question is, you know, is a, is a deeply troubling path for Charlie Flanagan to go down. But to get back to, to, to where we're at, I mean, I ca- it, it beggars belief why in God's name we need an external review 
to, to determine why these documents were not sent to disclosures tribunal. I can't understand why the people who got the email haven't been hauled in before the Taoiseach or the Secretary General of the Department of Taoiseach and asked the very basic question. Why in God's name did you not give this information? Yeah, to the yeah but, but we actually do need something external because the problem is that there are, there are potential criminal offences here. Mm. And the, the, the depth of this institutional crisis is that we cannot trust the guards who are the people who normally should be investigating this to do so because the guardy are wrapped up in the entire affair, right? So this whole thing is about this collusion between the Department of Justice and the guardy. So we have the Department of Justice now in the dock and we're going to get the guardy to, to investigate it. What we do need, I mean, I'm not at all um, uh, uh, challenging Sarah's point that, of course, the Taoiseach should have been calling people in and saying, what the hell is going on here? Account for yourselves. That's the, no- that you would think would be the normal internal process. But there, this, this crisis is of, is of such depth that, you see, it depends on what's the, what kind of inquiry do we need? Is it an inquiry that's, that, that somebody comes in and says, uh, you wouldn't possibly have any idea who gave the orders for these things to be withheld, would you? Which is the kind of inquiry that's carried out in civil service all the time? Or is it someone who comes in and sees his phones, sees his computers, uh, demands um, that, that people are, are actually questioned under caution, uh, that there's a full transcript of what they say? I mean, and it's the second kind of inquiry that we need. I mean, phones need to be seized, computers need to be seized. We actually need a proper, really powerful investigation because this is potentially one of the most subversive things that's been done in the state. It's this internal subversion of the well, state We don't have the structures, the, or the structures or the systems or the people to do... That's a, a Robert Mueller type and investigation. This is why we, is need to bring in, we need to bring in... This is a stalker type inquiry. We need to bring somebody in from the outside. We need to bring in people with police, in, pol- police experience. We need to bring in people who, who are empowered to do this because otherwise what we know is it's going to be, oh, sorry, the problem was terrible, dysfunctional... Um, oh, do we have that report? Let's take that report off the shelf we is, had three years ago that we've all known about. Is, is there no possibility at all, am I being highly over-optimistic in the expectation that Justice Charlton, who has a reputation well, for being a, you know, a, a fairly stern individual mm. and he's he's been fairly clear about how he's going to run this tribunal, that he might get to at least to some extent to the bottom of this? He may do. He may well do. And, and it'd be very interesting if he issues orders for the seizure of people's phones and computers. He did mention phones and computers, by the way, in his opening statements. He said, mm. you know, what I want is if you have anything in relation to this. I want it now. And he, he said, I want, you, I want your phones, I want your computers, I want all your email records, I want all your physical documents. Um, so he has laid down uh, his understanding of what evidence is, which is actually much clearer and much sharper than we've seen in any other tribunal that, that we've had before. I think if he goes back to his, his own opening statement and says, look, I warned you about this. I said, this is what I wanted. And you, you have been defying me. He may well take this very seriously. Um, but I still think a tribunal doesn't have police powers, right? It, it doesn't have the powers to actually go in and seize this stuff. And we're at a point where, quite frankly, we can't trust anything. I mean, how, how do we know whether we've got all the documents? How do we know that there's not more stuff? How do we know that things haven't been destroyed? Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, these are extreme uh, scenarios, and I have no evidence that any of these things have happened. But the fact is that there's no basis for trust. And the reason there's no basis for trust is that we still, and this goes back to what Sarah was saying about the, 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 the PQs. Is it a coincidence that the political system and the Department of Justice are moving in complete lockstep, right? So that the very stuff that is being withheld by the Department of Justice is also the stuff that Charlie Flanagan and 
Francis Fitzgerald and Leo Varadkar are denying in the Dáil, right? So that the, the, the withholding of the information from the tribunal happens to coincide exactly with the political narrative, which is being put forward by the political masters of the Department of Justice. So the political narrative is we knew nothing. No hand actor part. This, no, none of it ever happened. You know, it was the Garda, a commissioner on her own, who decided on this strategy. And let's remember, this was a strategy of undermining the O'Higgins inquiry. So the, the strategy that all of this is about, we tend to forget, was about a plot to put false evidence forward in relation to Morris McCabe. To say that Morris McCabe had told two senior Gardaí that he had a grudge against another person and in the Gardaí and this is why he was doing the whole thing. It, it is unchallenged that this was the intention of two senior Gardaí Apart from anything else, and it's one of the ironies in all of this that oh, Francis Fitzgerald couldn't couldn't uh, interfere with the um, with, with with the O'Higgins Commission because that would have been that would have been sort of a, a, an undermining of the commission. The whole point is the commission was being undermined. It was being undermined in order to give false evidence about Morris McCabe to destroy Morris McCabe, and in the course of that, of course, to destroy the whole point of the commission. The commission would have fallen apart. It's, the, its main witness, the whole the whole centre of this, would have been shown to be a liar and to be somebody who was who was motivated by a grudge. And that was fraudulent. That was completely false. If Morris McCabe hadn't had his phone and hadn't recorded on the phone the actual meeting, which showed that none, none of this uh, happened, then we would have had a false outcome from the O'Higgins inquiry. Equally now, if those emails which have been withheld had not surfaced, we would have had a false outcome from the Charlton Tribunal, through no fault at all of Peter Charlton, who is a you know, really serious person. But he, he would have had radically incomplete information about some of this. And the question now is, is this just accidental, right, that you have all this kind of suppression and withholding of information on the one side, and you have a political narrative which is suited by the withholding of that information on the other side? Is that just a coincidence? Or is there a larger political collusion going on here? Is somebody giving a signal to the Department of Justice, look, lads, keep this stuff to yourselves. We don't want it going to the tribunal. I don't know the answers to that question, but that's that's the serious question which has to be answered. And we're hearing, is that question ever going to be answered? Well, you? we're hearing, the, I mean, we're already hearing Fianna Fáil saying, I oh, know there's no problem here, move along. I don't know. I think the problem is that, you know, the department corporately seems tends to swallow people with any class of intentions up and that the whatever intentions politicians have gone into it, if they have any, you know, the suspicion always was that Francis Fitzgerald was putting to camp things down, don't cause trouble, we've had enough there, you know, kind of a fire blanket over the whole thing. But I think the, the interaction that, that, you know, people, not just politicians, people who work with politicians have with the department changes them. Like even last week, in the midst of this whole crisis, questions were being asked of the Department of Justice and Francis Fitzgerald, and we had this, you know, incremental uh, emergence of information. And the Taoiseach was quite disingenuous yesterday when I think he said a drip-drip of information led to a feeding frenzy on the minister. The reason there was a drip-drip of information is because they weren't giving the information. Like one, one person yeah. actually said to me on the phone last week, I was like, well, why didn't you say this? Well, nobody asked us the question. And you're like, that is a prehistoric attitude that just needs to change. And the people who go into that department suddenly take on these attitudes. And if Leo Varadkar is... Genuine what he says yesterday, I'm going to call in people and give out to them effectively. That would be a refreshing change, but I, hope, well, I don't hold we, my breath. We want to move on to, to Brexit in a moment, but Sarah, I just want to ask you, I mean, in relation to what Fiac said there, where stands something like the Toland Report then? Well, the Toland Report, according to Charlie Flanagan, the Dáil last night, a significant number, part, portion of it, he couldn't say how much had been implemented. But, I mean, 
Look, the Toland report is three years old. Um, it was done in 2014. It led to the stepping aside of the Secretary General of the Department, Brian Purcell, at that time. Absolutely nothing has changed. And, you know, that that's on the entire political establishment. It's not just on the government. But despite Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin and the independence, you know, criticism of the Department of Justice, you know, they let such critical matters fall by the wayside. Um, you know, right now, I think the, the, the question, I suppose, that faces the Taoiseach is about the future of the Department of Justice is whether to keep it intact as it is. It is a enormous department, almost 80%, I'd say, of legislation that goes through the heads of the Oireachtas comes from the Department of Justice. It has, you know, not just justice and policing matters, it's also, you know, it's got a range of other social issues under its remit. And the reality is, we've seen over the past decade, is that it is unsustainable for them to retain all all so break it up. That's what people have been talking break about a lot this and, week. You know, yeah. the, the Taoiseach indicated that when he took over as uh, Taoiseach, uh, when he when he won the Fine Gael leadership, he said this was something he wants to do. We now need to see concrete steps to ensure that there's adequate oversight of the Department of Justice. Because let's face it, they were doing whatever they wanted, and nobody, you know, nobody held them to account. We need adequate oversight. We need accountability, and we need the department to be dismantled bit by bit. Thanks, Sarah, we're going to leave you go now, and we're going to be joined in a minute by Dennis Staunton from London. You're listening to the Irish Times. Dennis Taunton, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. Um, we wanted to play a very quick clip, first of all, to give our listeners a sense of the quality of debate on Irish politics currently happening in the UK. <laughs> quick question on Ireland, Ian Duncan Smith, because this could all be absolutely academic because the Irish could veto a move to trade talks. What are they playing at? What's your view on that? Well, I think a lot of things are in the making on this one. There's an election about to go on in Ireland. The presidential well, no, that's election. not going to happen anymore. Well, no, the presidential election is coming up. And, of course, the key point about that is I think the present government is feeling very worried about Sinn Féin. So there's a, there's a great kind of bit of showboating going on in Ireland. Whichever way you cut it, politicians can see that straight away. The key element of this, though, is that Ireland has an enormous amount to lose if okay. they don't get on with the trade. You can't settle the border issue till you've settled the trade okay. issue. And that is former leader of the Conservative Party, Ian Duncan Smith, speaking on Channel 4. Say, Dennis, what are the thoughts today in Westminster on the impending Irish presidential election? <laughs> well, they haven't. Uh, I haven't heard that one apart from, from uh, in that particular clip. But actually, uh, in a way, though, he does speak for a lot of people here at Westminster who do believe uh, either of two things. One is that uh, Leo Varadkar is motivated by domestic political concerns. They seem to think that he's in some way in direct competition with Sinn Féin for votes and as being, you know, that he and Simon Coveney are being pushed over into a harder line by domestic political pressure. The other thing they, uh, the, the thing that you hear quite a lot is the idea that Ireland is being played by the bigger countries, by France and Germany, who are using this Irish issue to try to get more out of Britain on, uh, on other issues like the money. And so that eventually, uh, you know, the French and the, and the Germans will just drop us. And that so we're being manipulated. The one uh, theory which you don't hear uh, all that often here, and I'm surprised, is actually the Irish might mean what they say. And that they do take this seriously. And that it is something that they're prepared to go quite a long way to defend. 
one does get the sense, or at least I do, looking at the British media over the last week or so, that this has just come as an astonishing revelation to the British establishment that that this actually is a real problem and a real sticking point for Ireland. Now that it appears the the question of the bill is very close to being resolved or or has been resolved, are we can we expect to hear that you know alarm and amazement rise to an even higher octave over the next few days? Yes, it's amazing actually how often British officials are taken aback by uh, what the Irish are saying. So they were taken aback a few months ago when Simon Coveney uh, said, uh, you know, adopted this tough line. And then they were taken aback a few weeks later. Now they're taken aback again this week. And no doubt they'll be taken aback over the next few days that that this issue has come to uh, front and centre. I think it is definitely true that, uh, that because... Both sides, both Ireland and uh, the European Union on the one side and the United Kingdom on the other, have always said they want to avoid a hard border. So, so the end is agreed in that, uh, you know, in that respect. But they always thought that that was going to be relatively easy. Uh, whereas, of course, the Irish have been saying for quite some time that there are complications here and uh, a technical solution isn't going to be enough. Now that the money appears to have been sorted out because Theresa May has given a much more generous offer than she was expected to. And it does seem to have satisfied the European negotiators. Uh, now, this is the, the final issue. And, uh, and, and I think the other, the other curiosity of the way it's being talked about, I've just come from a meeting of the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee. And part of the tenor of some of the questions there was really, you know, why can't Britain and Ireland just sort this thing out together? Why are, you know, why is Ireland being uh, told what to do by the European Union? I mean, if, if Ireland doesn't want a border and Britain doesn't want a border, it seems to be only the Europeans that want it. Why doesn't Ireland tell the European Union to get lost? So uh, it's a kind of a questionable way of thinking that, you know, two sovereign states are just sit down together and sort it out regardless of the international context. Right, Fintan, I want to bring you in because you seem to be, uh, you seem to have taken on the role in the last week or so of interpreter um, <laughs> to, the, to, the, to the British people of what the hell is actually happening in, in, in Ireland. How has that experience been? Well, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's just bizarre. I, I mean, uh, so, I, I mean, I've been saying since April, look, folks, it's people money Ireland, okay, the people stuff will be done. There's a mutual interest there. The money is money. That will be done. Will you pay attention to Ireland? Because that's not easy and it's really difficult. In fact, you know, it's probably the thing that's going to stop you from going ahead with your lovely Brexit and you really should pay attention to this. Um, and going back in, in June, um, I was speaking at the, uh, the People's Convention on Brexit in London, which was, you know, really organised by terrific people and, but it was like 95%, you know, highly educated Remainers. And I started talking about Ireland and I said, you know, and one of the complications, of course, is that everybody in, in, in Northern Ireland has an absolute right to European citizenship because of the Belfast Agreement. And I, I could just see the room, you know, there's about maybe three or four hundred people. I could just see they're all thinking, oh, my God, this man is completely mad. He's, you know, he's just lost. Is he having a stroke or something? And I had to actually just stop and say, I can just see you don't believe me. Maybe, I, maybe let's just go back here and just try to explain this to you. Now, these were, I would say, mostly Oxbridge educated or, or you know, certainly university educated people, readers, probably all them Guardian readers. You know, they, they weren't the sort of Ian Duncan there's Smiths of this A world. red-faced colonel from the yeah, Shires. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the level of ignorance is absolutely astonishing. I mean, Cathy Sheridan has a terrific she column does, yeah. uh, in, yeah. the, in the paper today on it. But so it's, it's, it hasn't been at all surprising to find this week that you have... Uh, suddenly Ireland's been invaded by the British media establishments. You know, Channel 4 News is here all week. They're doing, I, I mean, they're doing very good stuff. But, but it, it's, it's as if they're suddenly just discovering the issue. Um, and there was an extraordinary moment in, in, in the House of Commons last week. So, so the Public Accounts Committee, the House of Commons, most powerful committee they have, 
had in the, the, the top people in British customs, including the woman, a woman called uh, Karen Wheeler, who is cross-governmentally in charge of planning for the borders after Brexit. That's her job. And really nice kind of, you know, lobbed, and a Tory member of the committee just kind of lobbed her a nice question. But, but of course, you know, the Ireland thing is a bit complicated. Could you just tell us a bit about your thinking on that? And she said, um, no. <laughs> like, no, I, I really can't tell you anything about that because, you see, it's just not part of our thinking. Like, you know, the border planning group that I'm in charge of, the Irish thing, we're just not doing that. I mean, it's just astonishing that they've got to a point where they've been warned repeatedly since April, you have to come up with something on paper, something specific. But I suppose then, then to move that, that on, Fick, we can be alternately appalled and amused by this level of ignorance and, and lack of engagement. But we're at the sharp end of this now. It's all going to play out over the next mm. three weeks or so. Uh, I think there's a big meeting on, on December the 4th between Theresa May and young Claude Juncker, mm-hmm. which is seen as a, as a key point. Well, given the environment which has just been described, how is Leo Varadkar uh, just emerging out of this mm. huge crisis, which didn't really shed great light on his negotiating or strategic skills? How is he going to play this over the next 20 I, days? As hard as we've seen him play it so far, I think there is an acceptance in the government and indeed in the doll as a whole. We saw yesterday Michal Martin you know, publicly commit himself to the government's strategy and position. There is an acceptance that they have to play hardball. It is going to be tough and they are ready for this kind of bemusement, vitriol, whatever you want from the British media, the British establishment. And in fact, some people in government say that they're actually being told by people in the British government, we know it's going to get rough. We know you guys are going to get rough with us, but we accept that you have to cut it up and that's just the way it is. There is an acceptance that that's what they have to do. And they are acutely aware that it's now or bust because of that way that this decision-making process is going to work, that we have this veto, and then after we go on to stage two, we go to QMV. So our influence is diluted, and they know that this is it. And so what we're talking about is a commitment by the British government that there will be no, I think the words are, regulatory divergence between mm. Northern Ireland and mm. the Republic. Is they accept it? It. There's an acceptance that, like, you know, look, we're not accepting, we're not waiting for an, an absolute solution to be reached before December the 15th. They say, look, we know that it is sure. going to have to get down to brass tacks in stage two, but we want a written outline of we do not want a hard border, and there is some suggestion, a couple of people in government said it two weeks ago, that they want a written uh, commitment that even in the event of a no-deal scenario, the British would commit to no hard border. It's hard to see that, but they want it taken off the table as a threat in stage two. They have said no regulatory divergence, but I I don't know how specific they want the British government to get because they accept that there are difficulties that will have to be surmounted in stage two. Dennis... Moving beyond the kind of the, the the matter elements of the British press, which we've seen over the last few days, I mean, what's your sense there of how much wiggle room there is for for, for the British negotiating side on this to achieve what Felix says Leo Varadkar will be looking for? Well, there's a, obviously there's a, there's one complicating factor, which is that Theresa May's government depends on the eight, on the ten votes of the DUP, and they uh, have made it very clear that anything which appears to um, threaten uh, the constitutional uh, integrity of uh, Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom is, uh, is an absolute red line. You have seen, though, I think in the last couple of days, some movement. So this morning, for example, uh, a Brexit minister, uh, Robin Walker, at this committee meeting I was just at, he did say, he did make a commitment that no matter what happens, and under no circumstances will Britain increase 
the uh, physical infrastructure on the border so that they've made an absolute commitment not to harden the border. Now, that's not quite enough because uh, the problem is that if you have one side putting up a border control and the other one doesn't, it really doesn't matter because it's going to cause delays on, uh, you know, and disruption on both sides of the border. I think where they also may be moving towards in terms of trying to agree some language on this uh, between uh, Britain and the EU is to look at the Good Friday Agreement and to go through the Good Friday Agreement and to base everything, uh, all of their commitments, on upholding the uh, Good Friday Agreement in its entirety. And that obviously includes all those 142 areas where North-South cooperation uh, has an impact. And so, so I think that uh, what, what the British are talking about is uh, they're picking up on what Simon Coveney said some time ago, that they were looking for a roadmap a kind of a commitment of the direction they're going without actually the final details. But obviously, so I think that that's where the, the, um, the negotiations are going to go in the next few days. Fenton? Yeah, I mean, so what it's come down to now really is um, how much is the Irish government prepared to trust what a completely dysfunctional, uh, leaderless British government is going to say, right? So, and of course, it's the same problem the European Union as a whole has, right? So, which is, you know, you're, you're into negotiations, but you're negotiating with people for whom you have no reason at all to believe that they can deliver on the commitments that they will make. So for the Irish government, the imperative is to get those commitments absolutely written down and and unchangeable, right? So that if, you know, whatever the sort of mood of the, whatever the Daily Mail tells Theresa May to do isn't going to be the thing that's going to determine. Or indeed, what, what if there's happened. a leadership heave or whatever uh, there uh, might be. Precisely. Mm. So uh, I'm sure Dennis is right in terms of saying there has been some movement in this. They're, they're finally engaging. But remember, they're engaging from a position of no preparation mm. at all, mm. right? So this is what the House of Commons was told last week. So but basically, it's not just that we don't have plans it hasn't been included in our planning process at all, right? So whatever they come up with is, is, is going to be fairly broad. And the problem with it is, of course, that it's, it's going to be broad in, uh, in relation to something for which the solution remains completely elusive, right? So when it comes down to it, you're either going to say, uh, there is a border on the island of Ireland which functions as an international border, as an EU border, and therefore is a hard border. Whatever way, whatever way you want to call it, uh, it's going to be. And it's going to have physical infrastructure. These commitments that we've heard before from the British of no physical infrastructure is, is not a commitment. It's just a way of saying it'll all be the European Union's fault. It's not, it's not, we're not to blame. So you're either going to have that or you're going to have some kind of move, movement of the border you know, to, to across the Irish Sea. Very interestingly, there's been two polls actually in the last week in mm, Northern Ireland, yeah, which have both shown that actually a majority of people prefer the Irish Sea option to the to the internal border uh, uh, question. So most people in Northern Ireland are kind of prepared to say, look, yes, there will be inconvenience in terms of travelling between, between... Not necessarily Ireland, most DUP voters, though. Uh, no, and this is really what it comes down to. It, it comes down to uh, a kind of face-off, really, between the DUP and the Irish government. Mm. The Irish government is going to have to get... and, and you know, The Irish government has done it astonishingly well. I mean, we've been very critical of the Irish government, but... Mm. In, in getting the European Union to articulate the Irish position as a European position, that's an amazing diplomatic triumph. The European Union has gone very far indeed. I don't think people understand how far they've gone in saying, we want essentially a sort of island of Ireland solution. Because remember what they're actually saying there is that 
the entire island of Ireland will become a sort of exception within the European Union. Sure. So the, the whole thing they're trying to keep together in these negotiations is to say there will be no exceptions. You can't pick and choose single market customs union. You're either in or you're out. And actually what they're, what they're more or less saying is, except for the entire island of Ireland, we're prepared to accept this. So they've gone very far. The problem is that they've gone very far in exactly the direction that the DUP is trying to stop. So this is going to come down to a face-off between who has most power in this. Does the Irish government's power to hold up the uh, movements to the second phase of Brexit talks trump the DUP's hold over? And here's a real question. I'll be able to make in a sec, but a question to you, Dennis, because I'm conscious of your, um, you know, you used to be our Europe correspondent as well. Um, Ireland has a veto in this process, but Ireland, I would imagine, is extremely reluctant to any formal sense use that veto. And Simon Coveney has been, you know, very strong in reiterating again and again that Ireland is at one with Europe on this. Um, if it comes to the crunch, does Ireland use its veto or is does Michel Barnier represent the European position, which is absolutely in sync with the Irish position? I think Ireland would be very reluctant to uh, to use its veto. Uh, if you talk to people here at Westminster, it's very hard to find anybody who uh, believes that uh, the rest of the Europeans will allow the uh, Irish question to hold up moving from uh, round one to round two in December because the amount of money is so big. And what I've been hearing from Brussels is that there is a lot of sympathy for the Irish position. And as of now, the Irish position is the European Union position. So they need to get something from Britain uh, on the border. But at the same time, the, the amount of money that's being offered is so overwhelming that it really does tick so many of the boxes, along with the uh, agreements on the system's rights in the future. That, uh, that that Brussels would be reluctant to allow the Irish thing to hold things up, but they have to get something. So I think that uh, you know uh, the betting probably in London and in Brussels would be against the uh, the Irish really going to uh, the wire and using a veto on it, and also because the the system it's you know these decisions are made by consensus. And it's uh, you know the, the ideal way is that you just get your, uh, your your various ducks in a row in advance, and that's that's certainly the Irish way of negotiating in Brussels. And indeed, that'll be what what as, um, Simon Coveney and Leo Varadkar will be looking to do, Fiat over the next one. Yeah, I, I, I think the possibility of Ireland actually using its veto is remote. They have always, in all their dealings in the European Union, you know, stressed that they are good Europeans and were part of the European team. And uh, even in recent weeks, there has been no question that they will actually use the veto if it came down to it. I so think. what if, as Dennis suggests, the, the, the Brussels is happy with the with the rest of the deal to the extent that it starts putting some pressure on Ireland perhaps to compromise? Well, that is, that is the call that the Taoiseach will have to make, but I think, you know, they are hopeful that they will get some sort of formulation of an agreement with the UK that will allow them proceed to phase two and they are accepting as we said that not everything will be done now will be done in phase two but once they get principles that ensure that Ireland cannot be dragged back into the negotiations in phase two I think that will be adequate for them but again the possibility of us using a veto is very remote Take a last word from you, Bear in mind though that the, the use of the veto is a bit of a red herring in, in the sense you know, which is that uh, Ireland has a very strong moral position as well right? so, so the, the, even if we don't formally use a veto there's no way the European Union can go ahead at this point if the Irish government is saying what we've got is terrible you know? mm. so, so, so it has to be something that's credible um, and really uh, the, the, uh, one thing I, I would um, throw into this as well just finally because it brings us back to the earlier part of our discussion remember uh, Leo Varadkar's political authority has been really deeply damaged this mm. week the only way he's going to get it back is mm. to be seen to be the national leader who was leading this fight for Ireland. Mm. So 
uh, the Brexiteers will be looking at it and saying, oh, you know, there's now Ireland has a better incentive to do a deal. Actually, it's the opposite. Mm. A bit of conflict, uh, a bit of dragging out of this, having Leo Varadkar in the headlines uh, all the way up to Christmas as the sort of champion of Ireland against the Brits will do him no harm whatsoever. More attacks from by the sun. You know, that, More, that's, yeah. that is very true. He needs to regain the political capital he has lost in the last few days. However... His strategy or his strategic thinking and his negotiations perhaps will lead you to question if he has a firm idea of what he's doing. Now, this is a completely different scenario because he has a huge number of officials and yes, you know, apparatus and process. Yeah, podcast, so I think a different setup. he does have to regain political capital and that probably will increase his temptation to play hardball, at least publicly, in the next few weeks. Well, this is all going to play out over the next fortnight and a lot, a lot is at stake. Thanks very much to, to Dennis and to Finton and to Vic for joining us today. That's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Collin, our engineer, JJ Vernon, and all our guests today. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider is. You can also find us on irishtimes.com slash podcasts. And please do take a moment, if you can, to recommend or share the show. Also, we do really value your feedback and your suggestions, and you can mail them directly to me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com, or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye, and thanks very much indeed for listening.